0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And as I reflected this week on this particular passage, I want to read to you a statement that that resonated in my heart and mind that I think encapsulates something of what Nehemiah chapter 4 is about. Here's the statement. There is seldom significant spiritual advancement without supernatural opposition. There is seldom significant spiritual advancement without supernatural opposition. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, think about the life of Jesus for just a moment. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus preached his very first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. The people had turned against him and ran him out of the city. In the book of Acts, in the first, second, third chapter, 5,000 people were saved. Almost immediately after the salvation of 5,000 people, a persecution broke out against the church and Peter and John were arrested. As the church was beginning to, to grow and to multiply, and, and people literally were, were pressing in, caring for one another, making sure that one another had food to eat and, and, uh, and that families were cared for, the story of Ananias and Sapphira appear. And Ananias and Sapphira are a part of that congregation that is expressing unbelievable generosity but we find them to be led by Satan into hypocrisy. So you've got persecution from without and hypocrisy from within, and and all of that is a strategic, satanic counterattack against the work of the gospel. Well, you see the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 4. Last week when we looked at Nehemiah chapter 3, when when we finish the chapter, we wonder, can anything stop the people of God? They are united. They are determined. They are ready and prepared to build the walls around Jerusalem. They've been strategically located around the city under the leadership of Nehemiah. And the people are ready to get to the task. They're ready to build the walls. They're ready to reestablish Jerusalem as the center of Jewish life. And then we turn to chapter 4, and we find that after this significant spiritual advancement, there is intensive supernatural opposition. You know, sometimes that surprises us. For example, we might, might be touched by the Spirit of God in a particular conference. Maybe it's a marriage conference. And we realize that our marriage isn't where God wants it to be. It's not even where we want it to be. And so we make the determination, I'm I'm going to put my my hand to the plow, and me and my spouse, we're going to work together to build the kind of marriage that honors God, and we're going to do it by the grace of God and for the glory of God. And then we find that that there's opposition within our own hearts. Selfishness begins to arise. Conflicts begin to occur. And we don't realize that the determination to make a spiritual advancement isn't making a spiritual advancement. It's determining something, but the enemy will come against us. And we're surprised by it. We sometimes think that we've been promised a, trialless Christianity, a trialless spiritual life. Peter wrote to a group of Christians that were suffering trials, and he wanted to remind them they shouldn't be surprised at this. First Peter chapter 4 verse 12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think maybe that's what the people in Jerusalem thought. When they, as a community of faith, made this determination, we're going to rebuild the walls of the city. We're going to, we're going to reestablish the sheep gate where the animals for sacrifice can be brought in. And then they no sooner make that commitment than things begin to go awry. I want you to notice in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3, Nehemiah's enemies. Nehemiah's enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat and Tobiah. And what you'll notice is that, that godless opposition disparages God's work. Godless opposition disparages God's work. In the first two verses, we see Sanballat. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? Even the burned ones. Notice the derision in this man's voice. We remember him from earlier in the book as being opposed to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. You sense anger, mockery, disdain, and slander. The people of God no sooner make a decision, we're going to advance By building the walls of Jerusalem and restoring the city to its former glory, then this man steps forward and opposes it. And then there's Tobiah. Look in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. He's saying what they're doing is so trivial, so insignificant, so inconsequential, but you take a small animal like a fox, and if a fox were to jump up on the wall, the wall would come tumbling down. It's not substantial enough even to hold the weight of a fox. And so, You've got these people on the outside looking at what the people of God are doing, and they're demeaning, and they're depreciating, and they are slandering, and they are criticizing, and they are bemoaning what's going on. It's the natural inclination of the human heart to be nitpicky, hypercritical, and fault finding. You'll find if that's the way you are when you're young, you'll be multiplied in that when you're old, like me. You will begin to depreciate and to bemoan and to criticize what others are doing for the kingdom. And you'll find that you've fallen into the very trap of Sanballat, Sanballat and Tobiah. So the people of God, they've set their minds to the task. And the enemy begins to criticize what they're doing from the outside. Notice Nehemiah's response in verses 4 through 6. His first response is prayer. And his second response is to call the people of God to action. Look with me in verse 4 and 5 where we hear the prayer of Nehemiah. It's a surprising prayer. It's an unexpected prayer. Now, we've already learned from Nehemiah he's a praying man. He's a man that believes that our first choice in any situation should be prayer. And so when we hear him pray, we're not surprised, but the content of his prayer is a little bit shocking. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity, and do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders." Circle the word God in verse 4. Remember, we've talked about this numerous times, that many people make the book of Nehemiah a book about leadership. And and I've suggested there are some good principles that we can learn from Nehemiah about leadership. But the book of Nehemiah is first and foremost a book about God and what God can do through a man or a woman wholly devoted to him. So Nehemiah knows that there is slanderous accusations being made against the people of God by those who complain, those who see the glass always half-empty. Those who are displeased with what others are doing because they're not doing it in the way that they want it to be done, how they want it to be done, when they want it to be done. So Nehemiah turns to God. But notice his prayer for the enemies of God is not the kind of prayer that we would have expected. He says, God bring judgment on them. God bring catastrophe on them. God bring bring them into a situation of demise. Why, though? Why does he pray that prayer? Notice the end of verse 5, for they have demoralized the builders. They're pouring cold water on what your people are trying to do. Uh, They're they're trying to dissuade them from following your will, your way. And so he's saying to them, O God, let them have what they deserve. But notice that Nehemiah doesn't stop there because in verse 6, Nehemiah finish, finishes praying, and then he says, let's get to work. So we built the wall. I like that. He said, let's pray. And they prayed, and then he said, now let's work. There's some of us that we want to pray, but we don't want to work. There's other, others of us that want to work, but we don't want to pray. The, the two go hand in hand, but the order must be correct. Let's Pray that God would bless what we're doing. Now let's get up and do it. So we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Notice these specifically mentions that they were halfway there. To half its height. You know, it's, it's often easy to kick something off. to to rally the forces to begin a great work. The difficulty is when you're partway there, you can either focus on how much you've accomplished or how much you've got left to do. And if you focus on how much you've got left to do, it can be very demoralizing. If you focus on how much by God's grace you've accomplished, it can be exhilarating. Look how far we've come. Look at this magnificent beginning. And yet, it all depends on the disposition and the attitude of the person, doesn't it? I want you to notice that beginning in verse 7, we turn our attention back to Nehemiah's enemies. Notice how the opposition responds in verses 7 and 8. Rather than shrinking back, they intensify their efforts. They slander what God is doing through God's people. They they demise it and demean it. And and Nehemiah prays and he said, let's get to work. So rather than shrinking back, they intensify their efforts to try to stop what God's wanting to do through his people. So verse 7, now when Samballot... Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were angry, furious. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Now, we, might, we may find these verses strange or odd because Nehemiah has just prayed but the prayer did not result in the elimination of the opposition the prayer was the invigoration of God's people in one sense the, situ- the situation moves from words to threats from words of dis- despising to threats of fighting. Now, it's unlikely that they would have mounted a a full-scale war against Jerusalem because you remember that Nehemiah was on a mission from Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. But that wouldn't stop them from what we might call a guerrilla kind of warfare, an insidious kind of attack in the night. And so the opposition intensifies itself. And this is exactly what happens in the lives of believers when they make a determination that they're going to follow God with all of their heart. Rather than the opposition shriveling up and leaving, opposition is invigorated to try and keep us from following the God that we've committed ourselves to. But I want you to notice that in verses 9 through 14, Nehemiah's challenge... Nehemiah's challenge: The first thing he does is what we've already seen is he turns to God in prayer. Circle the word God in verse 9. But we pray to our God and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. So he prays to God, then he says every man get his weapons. We're going to set up guards and we're going to watch the entryways and the weak points and the wall and we're going to fortify ourselves against the enemy. He didn't just pray and said, all right, let's just go to sleep, and we'll just trust God to keep him out. He said, let's pray and get ready to fight." But notice the response of the people in verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall." Notice that the people are very, very discouraged. The people inside the walls, they're looking around and they say, look at all the rubbish. Look at all that's left to be done. Look how far we've got to go. So in verse 9, Nehemiah prays, and in verse 10, the people express their discouragement. There is so much rubble. What's the use. That's the way people are in life sometimes. Our marriage is in such disarray. There's so much rubbish. There's so so much water that's gone under the bridge. There's not even any use. Let's just just, just give it up. Let's, Let's not even try. So much rubble. And while... It might not end in divorce, it just ends in two people existing, coexisting as strangers in what was supposed to be a partnership. Some people, they look at their life and they think, is it too late for me to seek after the Lord? And they look at all of the sins they've committed. The devastation they've left in their past. we think it's just too much there's too much rubble I've gone too far I'm, I'm too far gone what's the use that's exactly what the opponents of Jesus want us to think when discouragement sets in it paralyzes us and we're unable to make decisions we're unable to move forward So Nehemiah prays, the people are discouraged, and notice in verse 11, their enemies make threats. They will not know, here it says in verse 11, our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. So the enemy says, we've got them right where we want them. They're they're looking at the wall that they've built, but they only see what's left undone. Instead of looking to God, they look to the rubble. So what does Nehemiah do? Notice in verse 12, well, actually, the Jews, before Nehemiah responds in verse 13, they move from discouragement to fear. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place, you may turn. They're they're captured by fear. There's no escape. If they'll come through the breaches of the walls, the gates aren't ready to withstand an assault. And so they're, they're consumed with fear. But notice what Nehemiah says. Notice, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall the exposed places. And I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. Notice that Nehemiah encourages them to stand strong. He challenges them to pick up their swords. He says, be prepared for the enemy assault. He spoke as one who was confident in God and was prepared to fight a good find. Notice he says in verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. And he directs their attention to the Lord. He says, pick up your sword and look to heaven. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, for your sons and your daughters, for your wives and your houses. Circle the word Lord. Remember how God punctuates this passage. He says, look to God and pick up your weapon and fight. Be a courageous man that believes that you've got to defend your family against the onslaught of evil. Be a courageous parent that says, I will not let my children be taken captive. Don't be a spineless person cowering in fear. Look to God and get ready to fight. What was true with the people in Jerusalem is true with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be a people that are ready to fight battle to advance the gospel into enemy terrain. We've got to be a people that understand when we make a spiritual advancement, there will be supernatural opposition. When we begin to criticize the people of God, for what they are doing for the glory of God, we ourselves are being used by the enemy to sow the seeds of discord and disgruntlement. Nehemiah says, we've got to rally the people, but you have to rally them by turning their attention to God and then saying, God will fight for you because he will empower you to fight for yourself that is there are certain things God will do for us and there are things that God expects us to do by his grace and for his glory. God will empower us to get on our knees and pray, but if we don't get on our knees and pray, he ain't going to pray for us. God will empower us to press in and become an integral part of a congregation, but he won't dial the phone for us to invite a couple over for a meal or a family over for a game night. He will give us the strength we need to strengthen our marriage, but he won't put his arms around our wives and kiss them because he expects us to do it by his grace and for his glory. He will empower us to go in and kneel by our children's bed and say, Daddy's going to lead us in a prayer before you go to sleep tonight. But God won't go in there and force us to bow our knee beside their bed and pray. He'll enable us. He'll empower us. He'll remind us. He will do for us what only he can do. He expects us to do what he empowers us to do. That's the way sanctification works. That's the way that we pursue holiness. He will give us the strength to actually open the Bible. It doesn't take much strength, does it? But he won't read the Bible to us. He will expect us to read the Bible ourselves and then his spirit will take the words that we read and he'll make them real in our lives. What I want you to notice in this last section is Nehemiah's call. Nehemiah's call in 15 through 23. God fights for his people and he expects his people to fight for him. God fights for his people and he expects his people to fight for them. Notice how God frustrates the plans of the enemy. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God, circle the word, and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one, to his work. But notice they return to work as warriors. In verses 16 through 20, it's warriors at work. They they've got equipment to rebuild the wall in one hand and they've got a sword in the other hand. Verse 16 says, "From that day from that day on half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried our burdens took their load with them, one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Circle God there in verse 20. And so they go to the task, they go to to the wall, with one hand they carry the sword and with the other a trowel. With one hand they're ready to build and with the other hand they're ready to fight. And so warriors at work. So they carry out that work, vigilant and alert. Look in the last part of the section there in 21 through 23. So we carried on the work with half of them holding the spears down until the, until the stars appeared. At that time I also said to the people let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and lay a laborer by day so neither I my brothers my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me none of us removed our clothes each took his weapon even to the water so they they didn't even stop to change clothes They work day in and day out, ready to fight, ready to build. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ready to fight, ready to build. Uh, Only most of us have been known, at least in the Southern Baptist Convention, primarily for fighting and not building. Uh, Most church starts are the result of church splits, fractures within a congregation, over trivial, insignificant kinds of issues, the things that rile us up are not the things that rile God up. The things that anger us aren't the things that anger God. But these are not a people like us. These are a people that are ready to fight the enemy and to build the walls of Jerusalem, to build the church and to fight the kingdom of darkness. And so we see Nehemiah taking a discouraged and a somewhat disgruntled group of people and turning their attention to God and He's saying, God will fight for you. Now pick up your sword and ram it through the chest of the enemy when they approach. Our God will fight for you. Take your spear and throw it into the chest of the enemy. God will fight for you by fighting through you you as you fight the enemy this chapter is a beautiful I think picture of the statement that I used when we began there is no significant spiritual advancement without supernatural opposition let me give you a couple of final thoughts as we as we close this morning. Four final ideas that I'd like to share with you. The first one is this. Satan will use scorn, threats, distraction, and especially discouragement to get you to quit what God has called you to do. He will typically do it through other people. But sometimes it will arise in our own hearts through indwelling sin. He'll use scorn, threats, distraction, discouragement to get you to quit from doing what God has called you to do or to keep you from being who God has called you. To be, there's no such thing as a trialless Christian life. Second, when the enemy attacks, fix your focus on God and not your circumstances. When the enemy attacks, fix your focus on. God, and not your circumstances. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with our circumstances. It doesn't mean that we don't work with our circumstances. But we've got to firmly fix our focus on God. We see that in the passage. In the first section, the enemy threatens. Nehemiah turns to God. In the next section, the enemy reasserts itself, but Nehemiah turns the people's attention to God. To God. When you find yourself sinking below the sea of circumstances, focus on God before you begin to deal with the circumstances. Third, don't fight your battles alone. You are a part of God's family. Don't fight your, your battles alone. You are a part of God's family. You won't receive the benefits of being a part of God's family if you take the church and make it a conference. If you take the church and make it a conference, you will not experience the benefits of being a part of God's family. You will be a part of God's family, but you will have isolated yourself from that family. To be a casual comer and goer is to rob yourself of the very best part of being a part of a family. And that is having other people that can rally you, pray for you, help you. Don't fight alone. You're a part of God's family. Fourth, the biggest battle you will ever face It's when you begin to consider your eternal relationship with Christ. You'll face no bigger battle in life, no bigger spiritual resistance than when you begin to consider giving your life to Jesus Christ. Every enemy of the gospel will begin to assail your soul Every every negative thought about becoming a Christian will come to your mind. Satan will pull out every stop to keep you from putting your faith in Jesus Christ, from being forgiven of all of your sins and counted righteous in Christ. You'll lose all of your companions. The things that you enjoy doing, you might have to set to the side. You will have to you will have to to become like a holy roller. Every caricature that's ever been told against the people of God will begin to be formulated in your mind and in your heart. The biggest battle you will ever face is when you begin to consider your eternal relationship with Christ. Look to Christ. Look to God. Look to the promises of the gospel. Look to the benefits of the gospel. Look to the eternal consequences of not looking to God. Look at at what you will be exchanging. Your sin for his righteousness. Your hard-heartedness for a heart of flesh. Your isolation from God You will become a part of the family of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus put it this way, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He'll give sex in exchange for his soul. He'll give his profession in exchange for his soul. He'll give financial gain in exchange for his soul. He will give friendships in exchange for his soul there are a multitude of things that people will give in exchange for their soul but the question that Jesus is the point Jesus is making there's nothing there's nothing in this world or anything this world has to offer that's worth exchanging your soul for I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then we're going to have a have a time of singing, maybe that you'd like to, to talk to someone this morning about uh, your spiritual condition. We'd love for you to come down. We won't embarrass you or coerce you or manipulate you. We just love to talk with you privately, confidentially. One of our staff members will introduce you to, uh, to just a wonderful person that can open up the Bible with you and talk with you about your spiritual life. Maybe that you're looking for a church home and we, we're not a perfect church by any means. We're just, we're just trying to press in and reach out. And we'd love to talk with you more about what that means and what church membership involves here at Ninth and o Baptist Church. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and, and join me in a word of prayer. And then we're going to sing together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that your word is so relevant. We know that that Nehemiah wrote over four centuries before Jesus was even born. And so, Father, we pray that the truth of that word, which is still very, very relevant, in these moments could be planted deeply in our hearts and bring forth fruit